It is Palm Sunday. As I said, Palm Sunday kicks off what we call Holy Week. Holy Week is a seven-day run-up to Easter Sunday, or the better name, Resurrection Sunday. Palm Sunday kicks off this week. It's the moment we celebrate and remember Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem when he goes into Jerusalem for the final time before his death and crucifixion. There's Monday Thursday, which is this Thursday, which reminds us of the Last Supper when Jesus washed the feet of his disciples and called them to love one another the way that God loves us. There's Good Friday, which we'll gather together this Friday night at 7 to remember the crucifixion and Christ's death on the cross. And then we'll gather on Sunday morning, bright and early at 7 a.m. I'll see you there to remember and to celebrate the glory of the resurrection. You know, if these seven days weren't included in our Bibles, if this week wasn't in Scripture, our faith would not mean much and it would not change much. And Jesus would have just been another very interesting man among many over the course of history. But because this week happened, all the symbolism, all the meaning, all the significance behind it, because he did go to the cross, because he was buried in a tomb, and because he did raise from the grave with no intervention by human hands, because Jesus did what he did, the world has literally been changed for all eternity. So has our lives. And so we celebrate this week, we lean in, and we're going to fast Wednesday to Friday to just welcome in the presence of God, to hear what Jesus is saying to us and to individually and corporately as a church. And we're going to celebrate this resurrection, and I pray you lean in and press in and that God meets you in a powerful way. Today we are talking about the triumphal entry. We will be in Luke 19, reading verses 35 through 40. So would you turn with me to Luke 19, and as you do, go ahead and stand for the reading of the word of God. Amen. This is Luke 19. And they, the disciples, brought it, the colt, to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. Holy Spirit, come help us to see Jesus as he is and for who he is. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and minds to understand what the spirit of the living God is saying to us. Jesus, we love you. And more importantly, God, you love us. Join us this day. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Palm Sunday is not just the triumphal entry. It's not just a moment where Jesus rode a donkey into Jerusalem. The triumphal entry marks Jesus' announcement. You know, throughout his ministry, throughout his life, people had asked him who he was, if he was the Messiah, and he never really gave a direct answer. In fact, a lot of times when he would heal somebody, he would actually say, go and don't tell anybody about this. They rarely listened to him, but still he made a good effort to get them to stop. 
But it's in this moment, as he gets on a humble colt and rides down from the Mount of Olives through the Kidron Valley and up into Jerusalem, that people are shouting and proclaiming the names and the titles of who Jesus is. They are announcing him in a very direct, a very uh, profound, and a very powerful way. And it's not just what people are saying, but it's the imagery of this moment and what's happening and all the rich meaning that's within there. And as you look at the story of the triumphal entry of Jesus coming into Jerusalem, there's a lot of um, just very peculiar juxtapositions going on here. Things that seem a little bit odd or a little bit curious or a little bit maybe out of place or we're not sure why they seem to be happening this way. For instance, Jesus comes in riding on a donkey, humble and a lowly beast of burden, which is not exactly what you expect your messianic king and savior to come into town riding on. And yet that act alone was communicating a lot about the type of leader that Jesus was going to be. And although he comes in humble and lowly, the people are receiving him as though he's a king returning in victory from battle. They're taking their garments off. They're throwing them down on the road before him. This is a callback to 2 Kings where the same thing happens when Jehu is announced the king and the people in submission to him and, and, and acknowledging Jehu as the, they took their coats off. They threw them on the ground and they shouted, Jehu is king. And so now you have hundreds of years later, Jesus coming into the same Jerusalem and the people in an act of submission and acknowledgement of who he is, throw their cloaks down and shout, Jesus is king. They're waving palm branches. That's why you have palm branches this morning. We're celebrating and participating in the moment. Palm branches are a sign of victory. They're a sign of uh, Israel's heritage, the city of palms. And they would wave them just like welcoming their king back from battle and celebrating this moment. So you have him coming in humble and lowly on a a colt, celebrated like he's a returning victorious king. And in hindsight, what they didn't know, but Jesus knew and we now know, is that he was coming in, slowly marching into the city where the people who wanted to arrest and kill him were waiting for him. So he's on the slow march to his death as his disciples shout, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. There's a lot going on here. You got some people who get it, who seem to know what's happening and seem to acknowledge Jesus rightly. And then you have the other people, the Pharisees, who are saying, man, keep those people quiet. They don't know what they're saying. Make them stop. And that interaction is what I want to look at today because I think what's happening in that moment, which is only Luke captures that moment. The the triumphal entry is in all four gospels, but only Luke calls out that interaction. And I think that's so important because When Jesus shows up in your life, in power and in presence, he demands a response. And no response is a response, lest you think we're still waiting it out and we're just going to wait and see who Jesus really is. The question for today is how will you respond when Jesus shows up in power and presence in your life? And what we have talked about from this pulpit before is that your response is your responsibility. How you respond is up to you. This is true in life. If your coworkers or your kids are acting up and acting crazy and making a mess out of things at work or at home, how many of you know that does not give you the right to lose your Christian cool and and betray your morals and your values and say and do whatever you want? Because why? Your response is your responsibility. It's true in marriage as well. If your spouse has a strong reaction to conflict or raises their voice or says some unkind thing that does not give you a free pass, to match them where they're at and unload everything you've been withholding for a few days. They don't control you, you control you. 
You don't control them. Your response is your responsibility, and it is true of Jesus as well. When he shows up in your life, his presence demands that we respond in some way, and the way that we respond is up to you. In the passage that we read and in the triumphal entry story across the four Gospels, I noticed three ways that people respond to Jesus. Some cried for help, some cried for more, and some shouted out in praise. The title of the message today is Cry Out. Um, I have three kids. They're six, four, and two years old. And uh, they're the best. I love them. And uh, they are a riot in every sense of the word. And one of the things you learn as a parent over the years is you begin to learn to distinguish between the cries of your children and the things that upset your children. So take my oldest, for example, Logan. He's six years old. He's an oldest child, and he really, really hates it when he doesn't get his way or when he loses. And he's only six. And some of y'all are married to oldest children who still have that same problem at 46. That's a different sermon. Sorry, I don't know where I... That wasn't in my notes. That just came upon me. My middle son, Levi, he, he cries when he's tired. He doesn't cry when he wants to go to sleep because he doesn't ever want to go to sleep. He just doesn't want to be tired. I don't know how that works, but it works for him. And my youngest son, Judah, is a bit of an over, overachiever. Uh, he excels in every way. Um, he has a very unique cry that he uses for everything. Um, <laughs> Cries when he wakes up, cries when he goes to sleep, cries when he's hungry, cries when he's fed, cries for a donut after church. I give him a donut after church. He cries about getting the donut. I don't, I don't know. I just don't know. He is two years old, so I know that that makes a lot of sense, but um, I like to call him an overachiever because we speak life over our children in the McGraw household. Yes, we do. And the thing you learn about children, of course, is that that cry is not for their benefit. That cry is to get the attention of mom and dad. And that cry is conveying something because there are emotions that are too big for words. And I, they don't have the capacity to get out what they're trying to say or to put into language how they feel. And so what comes out is this cry. And this cry is for the ones who know them the best and love them the most so that they would come and answer and meet their needs. And it's important I make that distinction because the cry of the child is for the one who knows them the best and loves them the most. It's not just for anybody. And I know that's true because the last time you were on an airplane and one of my children was crying, what rose up in you was not a sympathetic desire to come to our aid and to help us. But probably some form of rolling your eyes, pushing your AirPods in further, and turning the sound up as much as you can, and that's okay. That cry wasn't for you anyways. The cry, the cry is for mom and dad. And the cry um, is for a specific set of ears. Because if you see, if you, you don't have to pick my son up, but if you see my son crying in the lobby, uh, and you try to get him, it's going to get a whole lot worse for all of us. He doesn't want you. He wants mom and dad. We cry so that the one who knows us best and loves us the most would hear us and understand the emotions we're feeling that are too big for words and would come to our aid. And how many of you know God is called a father for a reason? 
And the reason is he hears your cry. He knows you the best. He loves you the most. And he comes to help you every time that you cry out to him. But he doesn't come to help you just because he's your butler waiting to meet your needs. Right? Just get that right for a second. God's not just waiting up there. I hope they cry for me. I'm ready to. Do you need something, sweetie? No, no, no. God responds to your cry because he's trying to teach you something about him. That he's trustworthy. That he is able to help you. And that he loves you so dearly. And that you need him every day of your life. There's a way that we cry out to God that ought to teach us something about him, not just something about us. And in this passage and in this story, the overwhelming cry that is made is this shout, Hosanna, which means save now or save us or as a title, save your. And um, this is, if I'm honest, um, the most common way we come to God is we come for help. We cry out to save us. Meet me here. I need this. God, help me with that. And I think that's, that's totally fair. That's, I think that's a good way that God uses things in our life to draw us back to him. But one of the risks that we run, particularly in the American church and in our culture and our society, which is very prosperous when you compare it to everywhere else on earth, we have very gifted, very educated, well-resourced, highly intelligent people And the temptation and the risk that will continually arise over the course of your life is this little lie that says, you don't really need him that much. Like if you think about it, you can get there on your own. You can figure it out. Worst case scenario, go to God. He's busy. Don't bother him. You got it. You know, the the United States doesn't rank first globally in a whole lot anymore. I actually don't know if they ever did, but... Um, the recent studies that I've seen, they certainly don't. So things like education, agriculture, economy, family benefits and care, like the United States is not at the top of the list for any of those. Um, but we continually top the list in one thing year over year over year by like huge percentages. Uh, and the thing that the United States is better at than anybody else in the world uh, is confidence. So we rank mid to low in everything else, but you can't tell me differently. (laughs) I don't even think I believe those studies. In fact, there was a part of you when I said we're not first in those that you're going like, was it really? I don't, I assume we were, and that was confidence. That was confidence (laughs) saying we're the best. We assume we're going to win every global sporting competition. Do we not? We're going to win the Olympics. We're going to win these things. And for the World Cup, we just go soccer's not a real sport. So (laughs) it doesn't matter that everybody else in the entire rest of the world thinks it's the best sport, we are confident that there's a better football. I don't even know if I'm making a position on that. I'm just, yeah, I don't know. There'll be some stuff about Jesus that I hope gets louder applause than that later in the message. Um, 
But this is where we're great at. We're great at confidence. We assume the American dream. We assume we can get there on our own. We can lift ourselves up by our bootstraps. We can make it work. And I'm okay with the hustle. I'm okay with the mentality that says I'm going to work hard and make something of my life. I'm not speaking against that. Like you can't get something by doing nothing. And it only works if you work it. So I'm with that. Work hard. Get educated. Make something of yourself. Pursue God in the midst of all of it. But here's the problem. We take that mentality and we apply it to everything else in our life. So when we look at the areas where we're struggling like our relationships or our marriages or our parenting or our finances or the addictions that we battle or the sin struggles that we exist in. We bring that same mentality that says, I can get myself out of this. I'll figure out my own way. I'm smart enough. I'm capable enough. I'm not going to bother anybody. I'm not going to ask for help. I will just figure out a way to get myself out of the mess that I've gotten myself into. And I just need you to know that that's a lie. That's not how this works. Never has been, never will be. And even if you do experience a measure of success, you will not experience a healthy version of success, and you certainly won't experience God's version of success. But we think we can do all things by ourselves. And after years of trying and failing and falling short and realizing maybe we do need some outside help, do we ask for help? No, we make excuses and we blame the system and everybody else in our lives as to why we didn't get to the place that we needed to be. We didn't become it because you know what is really my parents' fault. This really was my teacher's fault. This is economy's fault. You should meet my boss. They're the reason I didn't. All these things, I don't have time, I don't have money, I don't. That's what we do. We make excuses. And so we come to a moment where we actually need help and we have the audacity to think we know what type of help we need. It's crazy to me. We're out here drowning. All of us get to the place where we've reached the end of ourselves, where we've given all we've given, we've made a mess of something, things are not going the way we thought they were going to go, we're unhappy with the outcome, the relationship is damaged, whatever the thing is, and we are just out here in the water, thrashing about, no life jacket on, cinder blocks tied to our ankles, pulling us down, trying to keep our head above water, and instead of asking for a rescue boat or a life preserver, we're asking God for band-aids. We don't know the type of help that we need. So we're in financial stress going, I don't know, God, who I am or what I'm supposed to do in the earth. Lord, would you give me a new job? We're battling against sin, addictions, and patterns year over year after year after year, trying to numb the pain that we're experiencing in our life. And we go, God, give me a safe travel to my vacation because when I get back from my vacation, I'm going to be different. We're warring against principalities and powers in the earth, and we're asking God to heal our headaches. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Not that you can't pray for those things, but you don't know what type of help you actually need. The Israelites, the Jewish people thought they knew what they needed. We need a messianic king to come and take power, to sit on his throne, and to make everything right for us. We need him to get the powers out so his power can come in. We need our enemies removed. We need military might, and we need somebody who can set policy. That's what we need, and here he comes. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And little did they know that king was walking to sacrifice his life in an act of love so that we would actually have all the help we would ever need. We get confused sometimes when we cry out to God for help because we think we know what type of help we need. 
But the triumphal entry, this moment is a chance for us to look at Jesus and realize that perhaps the things that we've been crying out to God for over the course of our lives, all the, all the pain and all the difficulty, all the needs that we have experienced, maybe the triumphal entry is a reminder to us that in Christ, God has already provided everything we'll ever need for the course of our lives. This is where Christ is seen as supreme. It's called the supremacy of Christ. Jesus is over everything. He is in all things. Everything you've ever needed, ever desired, ever had a pain for, Christ is king over all of it. And all we have to do is cry out to the one that God has already provided. And in Christ, we feel those things begin to strip off of our lives because the work was finished with Jesus at the cross. Didn't start there. It ended there. And yet the temptation we have is that we kind of know that, but we always come to God crying out for more. We're almost never satisfied with what God has done. We always want more. You know, in John's account, um, actually, before I tell you about John's account, I want to prove my point. Um, like if I told you today, that I was a part of a, of a miraculous healing. Like I prayed for somebody, the blemishes on their skin, they disappeared as I looked at them. It was spirit-filled. God was there. We saw something amazing happen. We, we saw somebody on, on Monday who had cancer diagnosis. On Tuesday we prayed, and on Wednesday they came home cleared, and we're going, the power of God has moved. And if I told you the testimonies that we have been seeing in our staff meeting about healings on the campus and in the church, you would be encouraged, you would be incited, you might even be faith-filled, but if you were honest a part of you would not be satisfied until you saw it for yourself. We're never satisfied with what God has done. We always want to see more. And in John's account, it says that the people came out not just to see Jesus, but to see somebody who was with Jesus. And you don't see that very often in scripture. It's usually all about Christ. But John makes note to say that the people came out to see Jesus and to see Lazarus. Because Lazarus was walking around with Jesus in this moment. And they had known Lazarus was dead a couple days ago. And apparently now he's walking around. So I got to go see that for myself. I got to get my eyes on that one and see what really happened. I got to verify the miracle. And I think the reality of those people who came to see the fruit of a miracle really want to see that miracle for one reason. To see how God might be miraculous to them. This is just the human heart, right? We want to see more so that we can see if there's more for me. And I can imagine these people going, oh, man, you know, Lazarus was the warm-up act, bro. There's so much more that we're going to see here. You know, man, walking on water was cool, but you just wait till he's installed in his full power. You know, I heard he was, he's pulling coins out of the mouths of fish. We're going to be rich when Jesus gets on his throne. <laughs> like this man makes bread and fish multiply. Like, we're going to eat so good. I just can't wait to get him seated on his throne. All these Roman soldiers, they're going to be out of here. We're going to be free again. Let's go and see what Jesus will do for me. 
And the reality is that there is always more with God. Like over the course of your life, you will always learn more about who God is and what his character is like and how he's shown up in your life. You know, growing in God over the course of your life is not like diving into the ocean where you get to know him better and better and you go deeper and deeper until you finally get to the end of him and you reach the ocean floor and now you know all of God. Life with God is like being launched into outer space where there is no limit because it's ever expanding. And the further you grow, the bigger it gets and the less you realize you know. So in God, there absolutely is always more. 100% believe that, that God can do all things. And the life of the Christian has to hold that reality in tension with the truth that if all God has ever done is all he ever does, then that will have been enough. Yeah, that don't get applause because we like the blessing. I understand. No, it's okay. We're all family here. I feel the same way in my heart. I know it's true, God, but, but, but could you? And we just have to walk that tension as disciplined followers of Jesus that says, God, I know in faith and I believe in faith. You can do all things, that the earth is yours and everything in it, and that all things are possible with God. God, I believe that in faith. And Lord, if you don't meet my need, that's okay. Because in Christ, I have every need met that I will ever have needed to have met. This is what's called the sufficiency of Christ, that Jesus is enough. He's enough. He's all you've needed and all you'll ever need. Because what he has done is restore you relationally to God and forgive every sin of your life, past, present, and future. He has secured an eternal destination for you with your Father in heaven. He has given you hope on earth for every day here on out. And if that's all he's done, man, I'm pretty good with all of that. And what's crazy, though, is that he doesn't stop there. Like, he's so generous and kind. He does give us more. He's forgiven your sins, and he restores you to God. He takes you out of the bondage of slavery to sin, and he brings you into freedom. He gives you adoption as a son or a daughter into his family, where you are eternally accepted, no matter what you've done or where you've been. And he gives you an inheritance that goes along with it that you don't deserve and you could have never earned. He welcomes you into his family. He gives you a new identity and he makes you new so that the old you with your old broken mindsets and sin patterns no longer exists, but a new version of you exists today and you get to walk through the course of your life a new you. So when I say Jesus is enough, I need you to know he's just, he's enough. It's all you need is him. He is sufficient. He is sufficient. And although we come to God crying out for more, there's nothing wrong with that as long as we're not dissatisfied with what he's already done for us. If we can be satisfied in the sufficiency of Christ, that's where God wants us to settle, that Jesus is enough for me. And then there's this third group of people. Um, and they were making a little bit too much noise along the streets and Bethany there down to Jerusalem. They were shouting a little bit too loud. Some of the religious people were getting mad and upset at them. And 
Um, I actually think I'm a pretty religious person, if I can be honest with you. Uh, I think religious people get a bad rap. I'm, I'm fairly religious. So maybe I should say the people who thought that it was inappropriate to add emotion and volume to their praise got upset. As if God didn't give you emotions and a loud voice for somebody else. God didn't give you a loud voice to like yell at your kids louder. Uh-uh. He gave you a loud voice to shout his praise at the top of your lungs because he deserves it. And he gave you emotions so that you could feel his presence in your body and know that he is good and experience the love that he's given you and you can respond out of that place. Oh, I believe that to my core, but the Pharisees didn't like that. Pharisees didn't like that. They asked Jesus, would you keep them quiet? And I know what scripture says, but I like to think Jesus said, I mean, we can try. I can try, but you know, if they get quiet, all this other stuff is going to start making noise. So how, how do you like your praise? Because <laughs> I'm going to get the glory one way or another. All creation was made and designed to glorify my name on this earth. And I think it's worth saying, whether you know, know, know it or not, or remember it or not, I think it's worth us saying that there is nothing in this house, in Grace Covenant Church, there is nothing that happens that's going to stop us from praising our God. There will be no rocks worshiping in this house. Do you understand what I'm saying? No matter the season we're in, no matter what's going on, there is nothing that's going to take our eyes off of Jesus himself and giving him the glory, honor, and praise that is due to his name. We believe the Bible's true when it says our God is great and greatly to be praised. And oh, come magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. That's not just some nice scripture. That is the cry of our hearts that we will, are, and forever will be a people who praise the Lord regardless of what's going on in the course of our lives and yet that is so much easier said than done because you can always find a reason not to praise the Lord the devil is always up to something he doesn't take days off and he doesn't take naps He's always messing things up in your life. He's always working against you, trying to discourage you, distract you, or delay the promises of God for you. That's what he's up to. Because if he can distract you, take your eyes off of God and what he's doing, and start looking inward at yourself and you alone, you begin to miss the way that God's moving in your life. If he discourages you and you just take in negativity all the, from everybody, everybody at work, everybody in your family, all your friends, and then you speak negative self-talk over yourself, you're just going to feel heavy and burdened and down. And if no one is speaking life over you, you're going to be so discouraged, it's going to be hard to see God anywhere. That's the work of the devil. Just call it what it is. Or he will try to delay the things in your life. Because here's what's crazy. When we don't get what we want, we don't blame the devil, we blame God. And we go, hey, man, you have promised me these things, and you were supposed to give them to me. And the devil's like, yeah, yeah, you tell him. You tell him. You get mad at him. Don't go to church anymore, man. That guy's a... The devil will do anything he can to steal your praise. The Bible says the devil's work is to steal, kill, and destroy. And if he can't take your life, he will take your worship. Because all he wants to do is take the glory away from God and give it to himself or to anything other than him. But I just need you to be reminded again that the one thing that's not going to happen, at least not in this church, 
is we are not gonna let the devil steal our praise. Do you understand me? Not for a minute, not for a moment, not for a season, not for one week, not for one Sunday, not for one Wednesday. No matter what you're going through, the worthiness of God to be praised does not change. God is not like money whose value changes year over year, season to season. God is not like an antique car or fine wine that gets better with aging. And the longer you spend with God, the better. No, no, no. You just know him better. But his value remains unchanged for all eternity. Our God is not like anything in the earth whose value fluctuates, appreciates, and depreciates. It is constant and eternal. We're the ones who change. We're the ones who are inconsistent who don't see him rightly. And so if his worthiness to be praised never changes, then our desire to praise should never change either because we're in his image. And although it's so easy to find a reason not to praise, I need to also remind you that no matter where you are, you always have a reason to praise. You always do. Always, always, always. Did you wake up this morning? Is there air in your lungs? Is there a heartbeat in your chest? Man, then you got a reason to praise. Has God forgiven your sins? Past, present, and future? Has he made you redeemed? Man, then you got a reason to praise. Does he hold your life in his hands? Does he know your end from your beginning? Has he walked with you every day of your life? Then you got a reason to praise him. Has he given you the Holy Spirit? Does he dwell with you daily? Does he help you every day? Then you got a reason to praise the Lord. And I wish somebody would stop letting rocks cry and stand up in this church and give God glory. Why would you on a Sunday let somebody else praise the Lord for you? You got breath. You're here and he's good and we're not going to stop shouting hallelujah to the king of kings to the lord of lords to the alpha to the omega to the ancient of days for the firstborn among creation and the firstborn of the dead jesus our lord blessed is the king who comes in the name of the lord for he is great and he is greatly to be praised and in this house we're not going to let rocks cry out we're not going to let someone praise on our behalf. We're going to stand before the living God, seeing him for who he is. Stay on your feet because we're not going to end this without worshiping him. This whole Easter season, the whole triumphal entry, all of this is to remind us of who Jesus is. He is announced in his presence that he is sovereign over all things. He is sufficient. Jesus is enough. And he is glorious. He is great and he is greatly to be praised. In this Easter season, it's the hinge of our faith. It's everything. It's the moment we're reminded that God so loved this world that he would give his only son that anybody who believes in him would not perish under the yoke of sin but would be granted everlasting life. And before we worship, I want to give anybody who hasn't responded to that gospel message a chance to respond. Because we don't want to praise him without getting right with him, okay? So if this is you, you can close your eyes, bow your heads, whatever makes other people feel comfortable. But if this is you today, you want to start or restart your relationship with Jesus. You want to follow him and call him Lord and Savior of your life. Could you just show me your hand so we can see you? 
Same for you online. That's great. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Amen. 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 Let's give God glory for that. Hallelujah. I want you, I want you to pray this prayer with me and then we're going to worship God because he is so deserving of it. Just say, Jesus, I repent for my sins, for my past way of living. And today, God, I say you are the Lord of my life, the Savior of my soul, and I'm going to follow you for the rest of my days. Make me like you, Jesus. My life is in your hands, and I love you, Lord. Say amen. amen. Listen, we're going to sing because there's no way we're going to preach this message and not worship God. And this is our entry point into the spirit of the living God over this week as we fast, as we pray, as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. This is the moment we're welcoming King Jesus into our midst that we and this community might see him rightly. So church, let's lift a praise up and welcome Jesus in like he deserves it. Amen.